again this morning. I, I want us to play a, a fill-in-the-blank game. This is going to be really easy, so be on your toes. If you're in Birmingham, you be ready to also answer this. But we want you to be ready uh, for this, this uh, fill-in-the-blank. Let's see if you can get it. Here we go. You Church of Christ folks think you are the... <laughs> okay, sound like you've heard that before. How many folks have ever heard that? Oh my goodness, we've heard that. I deal with that probably about once a week. Somebody comes in my office and says, you know, I, I really like coming to Landmark, but, but I got this problem because I've heard all my life that, that you guys think you're the only ones going to heaven. Well, how do we deal with that? Well, let me say this. That was not true at the beginning of our movement. If you're unfamiliar with Churches of Christ, we were part of what's called the Restoration Movement, which was a late 17th century, early 18th century, back-to-the-Bible movement that says there's too much division in Christianity. Why don't we just go back to the Bible and simply be Christians? But they never thought at the beginning they were saying they were the only Christians. In fact, look at the next slide, and you'll see a restoration slogan. Christians only, but not the only Christians. That's what they literally said. They made no claims to have the complete corner on the truth of God's Word. And then, it wasn't even true from the early leaders. Alexander Campbell and Barton W. Stone were the two prominent leaders in the beginning of our movement. In fact, in theological circles, if you were to go to a school of theology, they would call our movement the Stone-Campbell Movement. Now, the fascinating things about that is if you go back and you read Alexander Campbell and Barton W. Stone, they never thought that there weren't Christians in any other group. In fact, if you're interested in this kind of thing, go Google Alexander Campbell, Lunenburg Letter, the Lunenburg Letter. And it's a letter where in his paper, it was called The Christian Baptist, he was responding to a lady who says, is there anybody that's a Christian that's not in our group? And Campbell is very explicit, even to the point of comparing someone who is pious and holy and Christ-like, who has not understood baptism the way we understood baptism, to someone who was not very Christ-like and had been baptized. And he said, if I'm going to tell you who I think the Christian is, I'm going to tell you over here. And if you read Barton W. Stone, Barton W. Stone's explicit in the way you judge whether someone's a Christian or not is do they have the fruit of the Spirit? That's what you look to. Now, that didn't mean by these guys that they didn't have convictions or that we don't have convictions, but they believed there was an openness for all of us to pursue truth. And that's what we've got to do. Now, again, it really doesn't matter what they thought. It really doesn't matter even what our movement thought. It really matters what Jesus thinks about this. And in Mark chapter 9, Jesus has to deal with this issue when his disciples think (laughs) they're the only ones going to heaven. Mark chapter 9, verse 38, John comes to Jesus. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Can you imagine that scene? I think John is so proud of himself. He thinks Jesus is going to pat him on the back and say, man, you did the right thing. He said, Jesus, we saw this dude out doing things. And, um, you know, he's casting out demons. He's doing it in your name. But we knew he wasn't a part of us. And so, hey, Jesus, I straightened this situation out, man. I told him to stop. You know what's ironic about that? 
is that last week we studied a story where they couldn't cast out demons. And now they're being condemning to some guy that's out there casting out demons. Now, what's Jesus going to say to this? I think John expects Jesus to go, awesome man, you got it right, thanks for stopping him. In a previous point in my life, I'm expecting Jesus to do the same thing. But it really sort of messed me up when I read what Jesus said to him. Verse 38, do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. What's Jesus saying? Don't shut him down. Don't look at him with judgmental, condemning eyes. He's doing it in my name. He's doing it by my authority. The fruit of my power is evident in their life. Who are you to walk in and now say, you got to stop. And so, guys, here's what I say to us. Because this is not to say we don't have convictions and not to say we don't stand up for our convictions. But it is to say we don't have to do it from a judgmental posture that says we're the only ones who got things right. Nobody else got anything right. You know, recently, uh, Lincoln and I went to that J.H. Ranch camp. It's an interdenominational camp. What I love about going to somewhere like that, what I love actually about what happens here in our church at Landmark is that there are people from all different kinds of groups that literally come together to learn together. I love that about our church here. Many of you come from churches of Christ background. Many of you come from other backgrounds. And what we say to you is probably whatever background you came from, there's some strengths and there's some weaknesses. We certainly have strengths and we certainly have weaknesses. Why don't we just learn together? For instance, being at that camp, you know, I, I really have a problem with what's commonly called in religious circles, the sinner's prayer. I mean, why do you got a problem with that, buddy? It, it's got great sentiment because it's not found in the Bible. That's not what they tell people to do. But I can go there and I can enjoy it and I can learn and they can teach me some things. And when I get a chance, I'll corner somebody and try to say I'm not too sure about this deal. And that's the beautiful thing it should be. You see, listen, here's what's going on in our passage, all right? G, here's our headline today. Jesus humbles his followers. Jesus humbles his followers. Why? Because they have become proud and arrogant. Let me give you the context here of our story. Just a few verses before they try to stop the man casting out the demon, the disciples have been arguing about who's the greatest. Can you imagine that conversation? You know, Peter's always the first. Peter's going, man, guys, I know I'm the greatest. I'm the head guy. Jesus took me on the Mount of Transfiguration. And John said, oh, yeah, Peter, we were there with you, and you blew it, man. You said, let's build three tabernacles. I mean, that was a really stupid thing to say. And then Peter said, oh, John, you don't get, hey, who was it who first named Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God? It was me. And John says to him, and who did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan, too, okay? So, I mean, they're arguing about who is the greatest. And now they've got this encounter with this guy where they become exclusive and arrogant. And they think, you know, Jesus, if they're not in our little group, it doesn't count. And so Jesus knows he's got some work to do to humble these guys. And we're going to see three stories today where Jesus does that. He does it with a promise, a warning, and a picture, okay? Let's start off with the promise. Look what he says in the next verse, verse 41. 
Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name, because you belong to the Messiah, will certainly not lose their reward. What's the promise? The promise is that small deeds are big time to God. Small deeds are big time to God. What's he saying? You guys are over here arguing about who's the greatest. You're all puffed up and arrogant. You're looking down your nose at other people that are working in my name. And let me tell you guys, it's not who's the vice president. It's not who's in the power positions. What really matters is do you do some small things in my name? In fact, here's what I'll remember. I won't remember what big deals you do. What I really remember is if you're kind enough just to give a cup of cold water in my name. Listen, guys, it's not the big deals always, it's small things. And we today need to understand that what God remembers, what God rewards according to this verse, is when we behind the scenes are willing to serve people in Jesus' name. Like the definition of character I heard recently, character is who you are when no one is watching. It's one thing to do what you do up on stage, buddy. It's another thing when you're out there in the community and no one's watching and you give a cup of cold water in my name. That counts, all right? Now Jesus goes on to humble them by a warning. And you're about to hear some of the most vivid, challenging, almost abrasive words out of the mouth of Jesus. Verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones... Those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Now, now here's context. Jesus is saying, you, you dudes, your arrogance is hurting people. Now, listen to me. The arrogance of our movement has hurt us. But now as it hurt us, it's hurt other people. It's caused people to stumble. And Jesus says, let me tell you guys about this thing. You know what? It would be a whole lot better for you. Instead of causing someone to stumble, you'd be better off if someone tied a millstone. This is the word for the largest type of millstone. Would have, would have, uh, would have weighed tons to tie it around your neck and for you to drown in the bottom of the ocean. So Jesus says, here's what you ought to do about this. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go to hell where the fire never goes out, and if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. So here's his warning. To humble his disciples, better for you to be cast to the bottom of the ocean than to cause another Christian to stumble. Because all sin is terrible, don't get me wrong. But the worst sin is for you and I to cause someone else to stumble in their faith. Listen, because we expect the world to tempt us, to seduce us, to seek to trap us, that should be expected. The world, in many ways, is Satan's domain. We expect temptation and seduction and all those kind of things. But, but here's what Jesus is saying. 
you, you, you better not expect that in my kingdom. You better not let that go on in my church. That's one of the worst things I've seen in my life as a minister is when people come to church and they get seduced into sin. Maybe somebody comes to the youth group and they hang out with the wrong folks and before long they're out drinking together. Or maybe they come to our campus ministry and they hook up with somebody. Or maybe it's the singles. Or maybe it's just adults. And someone comes to our assembly or someone comes in our fellowship in some, in some crazy way. You know, maybe they're trying to overcome an addiction and they go to RSVP and instead of getting help, they meet a fellow addict that says, hey, let's go out and smoke a little pot together. Jesus said, let me go a little further. Maybe they come to church and they're fired up for Jesus. And they make friends of some member that's negative and lukewarm. And they become lukewarm. And Jesus said, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and you drown in the bottom of the ocean than for you to cause a brother to stumble. See, Jesus is saying to his disciples then and to us today that we need to be those who build people up, who help people. Maybe it's through direct ways or through indirect ways. Maybe it's through our arrogance and our attitude. Guys, a lot of us, it's our arrogance and our attitude is what causes people to stumble Um, They love Jesus, but they can't stand his followers because his followers are so stinking arrogant, so judgmental. Let me tell you guys, that spirit gets us nowhere. What what Jesus says is the solution to this. The solution is radical surgery. The solution is if you're doing something in your life that's causing someone else to stumble, then, then you need to cut it out. If it's your hand, what's he say? Cut it off. If it's your eye, pluck it out. If it's your feet, cut them off. What's Jesus saying? Whether it's what you do or whether you go or what you see, whatever it is in your life that is causing you to stumble, that may lead someone else to stumble, you need to do radical surgery to stop it. We know sometimes when the body gets in such bad condition that the only thing that can save it is an amputation. And Jesus says sometimes the only thing that's going to save you or maybe even save the body of Christ is a radical amputation. So listen to me. Maybe you're coming here overcoming an addiction. You may have to cut some things out in your life to overcome that. There may be some friends that you need to cut out of your life because you can't be around them without doing that. There may be some people that are so lukewarm and ungodly with their attitude and so negative that you've got to make a decision. We're not going out to eat with them anymore. You, I'm telling you, one thing I've learned in ministry and been reconfirmed to me over the last few months is you become like your friends. Whether you're 16 years old or you're 66 years old, listen to me, guys. We become like the people we hang out with. That's just, that's just the absolute truth. And Jesus says, here's what you do. If you can't handle that, and that's causing you to stumble, which, listen to me, when you stumble, there's always someone behind you stumbling. Cut it out. 
He said, was Jesus telling us to literally pluck our eyes out, cut our arms off, cut our feet off? Well, let's hope not because we'd look a lot different this morning if that were true, right? No one would, I don't think anybody would be looking at me this morning if we had practiced that literally. What's Jesus just saying? He's trying to say, my goodness, my friend, you got to get serious about this thing, dude. You're going to, if you want to follow me and not be a stumbling block, you better get radical with what you do about sin. Guys, one of our problems today is we have become so light on sin. Maybe it's an abuse of grace. I don't know what it is, but we just, we're not taking it too seriously. And so before long, I'm caught up in something I shouldn't be caught up in. And here's the truth. When I get caught up with it, somebody else gets caught up with it. And Jesus says, let me warn you, man, you don't want that. It'd be better for you to go to heaven with one hand or heaven with one eye than for you to keep living that way. So let me ask you this morning, in the sin in your life, are you willing to work in a radical way to get rid of it? What do you need to cut out? You know right now, where is your sin issue? What is your sin issue? Where are you most likely tempted? Where do you most likely fall? Who causes your attitude to stink? Who causes you to doubt? What causes you to be tempted? What are you seeing on TV that leads your mind in the wrong direction? What are you looking on the internet that's leading you in terrible directions? Jesus says, I'm telling you what, you better put that computer in the middle of the house so everybody can see it. Or or you might just need to get off the computer for a while. You'd be radical. Because it's going to take an amputation. And then after Jesus has given this promise, he's given this warning, then he gives us this, this picture, Mark chapter 10, verse 13. I love this story. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. Now listen, it was common in this day for you to bring your child to a rabbi for them to bless him. And so all these folks have heard how cool Jesus is, and they're bringing their kids, and they want Jesus to touch them. But the disciples, again, they're proud of themselves. They think they're protecting Jesus. I mean, Jesus is on his way to the cross. Jesus is a very busy man. Children in ancient days were not given much status at all. And so the disciples think, man, Jesus don't have time for this. And so, so they literally head them off. They rebuke them. The parents are, are walking away with their kids because the disciples saying, you don't need to get close to Jesus. He doesn't have time for this kind of thing. Verse 14, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. The word there means he had intense anger. He is so mad about this. He said to them, his disciples, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who would not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter in it. And he took the children in his arms. Literally, the words there are, he folded them in his arms. He placed his hands on them and he blessed them. What a beautiful sight. Jesus says a couple things here. He says, number one, the children... The kingdom of God belongs to children. If ever Jesus had a chance, if he believed it, to talk about infant baptism, this would have been the point. But he says, children don't need to be saved. Children are safe. The kingdom of God belongs to them. that's, That's one lesson here. But the lesson for us today is, not only does the kingdom of God belong to children, You will not enter the kingdom of God unless you enter 
as a child. Here's the picture. You can only enter the kingdom of God as a humble, helpless, dependent child. You don't enter the kingdom of God because you got it all figured out. You don't enter the kingdom of God because you do everything correctly. That's legalism. You enter the kingdom of God because you know your only help is God. Your only hope is in God. You don't enter the kingdom of God as a PhD. You enter the kingdom of God as a humble, helpless, dependent child. You know, guys, nothing in my life has taught me more about the love of God than being a father. I think most of us would agree. You can't believe how instantly you can love that little baby and how you would just sacrifice and do anything for that child. But today's challenge is this. Not only should that child you might hold today or that child in your home or your child that's grown up teach you how much God loves you, just an inch of how much God loves you. It also needs to teach you how to come to God. And you don't come with pride and you don't come with arrogance and you don't come because you can get it together or get it right. You come in helpless, humble dependency. Jesus says, let me give you a visual aid about how you come to me. Look at this little child folded in my arms. This child is pretty much helpless on its own. It can't feed itself. Probably the children Jesus is talking about might have been two, three, four years old. This child can't take care of itself. This child is not full of pride. Children are uninhibited. I mean, if one of your kids here in this assembly gets really hungry, they're not worried about what the rest of us think. They're just going to start screaming, right? They're not worried that the preacher hates that. They're just going to get up and go. I I love the kid I saw once, you know. He had been out two or three times, and finally he's going out again. And this time it wasn't the mom. It's the dad who took him out. And he's walking out the back door, and he screams back to the audience, Pray for me! Because kids are uninhibited. They're uninhibited in their love and the way they express their love. One of the things I miss about having little children more than anything is when you walk in that front door after a day of work and you hear them running to the door to just throw their arms around you and tell you how much they love you. That's, that's how children are. And that's what God says. That's the way we come to Him. We come to Him innocently, expressively, uninhibited. We don't worry what everybody else thinks about us. We just want to be in His arms. So, Jesus says, you know what? My boys have got a problem with arrogance. They're a little proud, puffed up. Sometimes we struggle with the same thing, don't we? Let me do that. Let me, let me tell them it's the little things that matter. Let me warn them that this arrogance could mess some other people up, and they don't want that. And let me show them what it really is like to enter the kingdom of God. The fathers, I want to conclude with you using those three stories to challenge us as fathers. First of all, Fathers, understand this. It's the small things that count big. It's the small deeds that count big. So many of us want to be great fathers, and we ought to be, and we study it, and we get all uptight about it, and we feel like we're not doing enough this or not doing enough that. I remember young in my fatherhood, life being really uptight. I'm not having enough family devotionals. I'm not praying. And and again, those are all things I need to be doing. But a, a wise brother of mine said, Buddy, You need to do all those things, but don't be beating yourself up about it. The most important thing you can do is in your home display the joy of the Lord. 
Do they see that God has brought joy in your life? And guys, here's what your kids remember, is they remember the small things that you do. When we were at the ranch a couple weeks ago, my boys both wrote me letters, and they were so touching. But what really touched me was a part of it that um, was sort of off to the side. Here's what Lincoln wrote me. Thank you for all the time you spent with me growing up, whether it was going to Alabama football games or playing pig in the backyard. I think that time together is what made us have the great relationship we have. That's not too big time, guys. In fact, I'm a little embarrassed. I played pig because it was shorter than horse. (laughs) Because that's what your children remember. You know how you you spell love, guys? T-I-M-E. And then I got this letter from Luke, and you just have to understand Luke to, to, to understand what he says. Hey, Dad, hope you and Stinky Linky are having fun out there. With all your cheesy father-son bonding activities. Just kidding. I cannot help begin to express how immensely you've blessed my life. You've always served as a rock for me through my struggles. Growing up, I always considered you one of my best friends since we enjoyed so many of the same activities such as Corvairs, Big Gulps, Bike Rides, sarcasm, and he got me in trouble the next line, and making fun of the women in our house. (laughs) 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 Stephanie's in the nursery this morning. Okay. (laughs) Let me tell you guys, it's the small things that make the big difference. It's just the small things. And that's what they're going to remember. Second lesson. You are the spiritual leader. You said, no, (laughs) my wife's the spiritual leader. I'm I'm just here to tell you. You are the spiritual leader whether you like it or not. That's what the Bible says. We might try to get around that, but the Bible says in the home, the male is the spiritual leader. And, And many of us, you know, we sort of abdicate that. But here's what I want you to know, guys, is whether you want to be the spiritual leader or not, or believe you're the spiritual leader, you are. Let me show you some statistics that will prove this. First of all, from a study done in Switzerland in the year 2000. Just look at these. If the mother attends church regularly and the father does not attend church regularly at all, 26% of their children will end up attending church regularly. 60% of their children will not end up attending at all. That's if the mother goes and the father doesn't go. go. Here's the next one. If the father attends church regularly and the mother does not attend church at all, 44% of their children will end up attending church regularly. 34% of their children will end up not attending at all. It jumps from 2% to 44% if the dad's the one who attends regularly. I don't know what it is, guys, but there's something about our impact on the family. Here's a study from the Southern Baptist Association. If the mother is the first to become a Christian in a household, there is only a 17% probability that everyone in the household will follow. Look at the next one. If the father is the first to become a Christian in a household, there's a 93% probability that everyone in the household will follow. Did you see that? Dad, are you listening to that? 
Whether you want to say you're the leader or not, whether you feel adequate or not, you are the spiritual leader. And Jesus' warning to you is this. It would be better for a millstone to be tied around your neck and you to be thrown to the bottom of the ocean than for you not to be the spiritual leader you ought to be and your children stumble and don't know God. So you are the leader. No question about that. Men, let me ask you a question. Are you spiritual? Too many of us men have allowed the spiritual level of our home to be set by our wives. And that's awesome that we have such godly wives. But let me tell you this. They cannot replace you. And one day when you look back and you're too busy climbing the career ladder or you're too busy with your sports or you're too busy just vegging in front of the TV or surfing the web to love on your children and to help them become who they ought to be in God, Jesus says you are going to have major regrets. Major regrets. So become who you ought to be. Let me give you one more challenge to fathers. First of all, small deeds count big. Second of all, you are the spiritual leader. And third, let little children lead you. This morning, I want to call on fathers to allow the innocence, humility, expressiveness of children to change us. Guys, because here's, here's our problem as men, is guys, we all know deep down we're not all, everything we ought to be. Who is, quite frankly? But, but, but here's what happens with us so often is that we've got too much pride to admit it. We've got too much pride to say, you know what? I'm not the spiritual leader I need to be in my home. Too much pride maybe even to come before the church and say, man, would you pray for me? I want to be who I ought to be. So I want to challenge you this morning. Would you be like a little child today? Not worrying about what the people around you would think about you. Only depending on God Knowing, you know, God, I, I'm not who, I, who, who of us as parents feels adequate. I don't. How we all, you know, I'm not here to beat you up or beat me up. We've all made major mistakes. That's not the point of this lesson. The point of this lesson is, since you can't do it on your own, why don't you humble yourself before God and ask him to help you do it? Now, we're going to have a special time of prayer to close out. I want to ask all the elders and staff members to come sit on the front rows. All of our elders and staff members that are here, if you'll come sit on the front row. And and here's what I'm going to invite you to do, dads, while we sing in just a moment. This will be so easy. You don't have to write out some big confession. I just want to invite you to humble yourself, literally, and get on your knees... Brother Bill, you come on up now, brother. I know you just got out of meeting. But, but what I want to do, we're just going to use this stage as a place for fathers to come and just kneel on one of these steps and, and just start praying. And then after about 20 or 30 seconds, one of the elders or staff members is just going to come over you and put their hand on your shoulder and ask you what they can pray for you about. And maybe you're a dad or maybe you're about to become a dad and, and you don't feel adequate. And today, or maybe you're a pretty good dad, you just want to be a better dad, and you never want to give up a chance to pray. I encourage you just to come as a little child, humbly. Maybe you're a child with older children that you're worried to death about. You're you're a dad with older children you're worried to death about, and you think it's, they've gone too far.
but you, they're never too far. And today you, you, you'd want to pray on your knees and for one of these men to join you in prayer. Or maybe today's the day that you want to become a Christian. Just meet me up on this front row before you walk out of here. Just humbly throw yourself on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and you can leave this place saved and full of the Holy Spirit. Because some of us have too much pride. This morning, while we sing this wonderful song on bended knee, we're just going to remain seated, but would some of you men come up here on bended knee on this day and commit to God that you want to be the father that only he can make you. Stop trying to do it on your own. You may have read so many books on parenting, been to so many seminars, and they just wear you out. But today I'm saying the most important thing you can do is come up here and pray to God and let some good brother. Man, I look around, I see some awesome dads on this front row. Some awesome dads. And you let them pray for you. Or if you have a prayer request, meet me on the front row. Let's start singing. Dad, you need to come up. Come on up.